chapter five, what we're going to get, uh, the first seven verses really speak about order within the church. The next few verses, eight and nine, really speak about that ever present danger that we face from the enemy. Uh, verse 10 then and onwards really starts to talk about the purpose of suffering and we'll build from that point. But let's just jump in now. Again, Peter's been looking at the, the, the Christian life, talking about the blessings we have, the privileged position that we have. Again, that kind of key verse in the whole of this first epistle is chapter two, verse nine. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth a praise of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light so so much of what peter's been saying a brief summary would be you've been given so much you've been put in an exalted position so this is how you should be living and actually very similar to the way that james speaks other than the fact that james is a little bit bit harder james doesn't really pull any punches he's simply you know you have got to live as a christian if you are a christian uh, that's james all over um again james we, we spoke about that um half brother of jesus uh, according to the flesh you know um grew up not knowing that he was the messiah um and and really the the his ministry is all about you know don't waste time I, I lost those years of of what i could have spent learning from and growing up with the messiah you know and he kind of encourages us not to waste any opportunity in, in our growing in grace and peter kind of the same kind of message but in a, a far more gentle way peter made so many mistakes didn't he you know he, he's one of those characters in the bible a little bit like david who we can relate to because we see the way he stumbles and he falls and he puts his foot into things and you know um, but there's something lovely about that. And I'm sure the Lord gives us these characters and these examples. So we can go, you know what? Actually, if Peter could do it after all the mistakes and things he made after denying Jesus three times, you know, actually we see the grace that God showed to this individual. Well, the Lord can work in any one of us. And that's like, I think what Peter tries to get across. And so he begins this chapter and says, the elders which are among you, I exalt who am also an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. And he says, feed the flock of God which is among you. And he goes on from that point. But we need to do a little bit of homework, uh, and just truly really understand exactly who Peter's talking to, and what really he's saying here. Now, he starts by using this expression, the elders which are among you. So, of course, the question we need to ask is, who are the elders? Who is he referring to here? Well, the Greek word uh, that's used here, uh, used elsewhere in the New Testament, is uh, presbyteros. Okay, uh, It's where we get the word presbytery from. Uh, it's sometimes used of a person being older, um, so somebody who's more advanced in years. Um, but actually, when you go into verse 2, it's very clear from the context, the way that Peter's using this. He's not using this word in regard to age, but in regard to spiritual maturity, and particularly those who are within the local church entrusted to care for the flock of God, okay, which is what he's going to go on and speak about in a moment. So that's just the context. Uh, David Guzik, uh, Calvary pastor, made this comment uh, in his notes on this uh, chapter. He says, the idea of the elder came into church life from Jewish culture. And he quotes Exodus 3.16, 12.21 and 19.7. He says, the word elder simply speaks of the maturity and wisdom that an older person should have, making them qualified for leadership. In its application, it is more about wisdom and maturity 
than a specific age. Now, that's an important point because, of course, you'll know that Paul, when he writes to Timothy, makes the point that don't let people think little of you because you're young. Now, Timothy, obviously, in that role of church leadership, from what we understand, he became the pastor of the church at Ephesus. He's kind of handed that that ministry, as it were, uh, well, directly of the Lord. But Paul was the one that really encouraged him in that. And those letters that Paul writes are very much uh, encouragement letters to a pastor. Um, but of course, we understand that, that Timothy was younger. So it's not just about your your age in terms of uh, how old you are in life. Uh, it's about how old you are, how mature you are in your Christian walk. And that's really what um, Peter seems to be addressing here. So again, it's the elders which are among you. Now, he goes on and says, um, I exhort. Now, this is like an encouragement. I'm encouraging you. And then Peter gives this kind of qualification. Now, there's a double thing here, and I think I, I share this in a second. But he says, who am an elder, also an elder. So Peter's saying, I, I am also one of you. Now, it's interesting to note, we'll no doubt say this again in a moment or two, but that Peter doesn't lord it over these people he's writing to and the elders in the churches that would be receiving this letter. Peter was not, uh, as far as he was aware, the head of the church. He wasn't the first pope, as of course the Catholic Church tries to maintain. He simply says he is just a fellow elder, somebody who is in the same position as all those in the local congregations with this responsibility to look after the flock. But he says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm qualified to say this to you because I'm also in the same position and I've come to this place of maturity so I'm able to encourage you who should have also come to that same place of maturity as he's going to go on and tell us to feed the flock of God and and so on we'll come to that in verse two in a moment but it's interesting because I think actually we see here a couple of qualities or if you like qualifiers of an elder within the church now as you go through the new testament you start to become sensitive to the way some of these terms are used now throughout church history um, some of these phrases and terms get um, misapplied uh, and some of them still today are, are misapplied typically in scripture um, there are two or three offices in regard to church leadership of course there is the elder which is being spoken of here the elder is somebody who has as is clear from the context here spiritual responsibility for those within the local congregation there is of course a role of deacon um, that is given to us in the book of acts and we know that stephen was of that sort it's no less spiritual in terms of the qualities and the requirements for that role and we see that in stephen's life itself and yet it was clearly a role that was devoted to the practical matters within the congregation, as opposed to taking oversight of the spiritual matters. So in a church environment, and that's what we typically try and have in, in this fellowship, although small as we are, that we have deacons who, whose responsibility is to look over the practical applications, the practical matters of the church. And then we have the elders who are looking after the, the spiritual side of things. Now, we also have uh, an expression uh, bishop uh, that is used in the New Testament. Of course, we have various kind of pictures immediately in our mind of what a bishop is. And you often see somebody with a rather tall pointy hat to, to, to symbolize humility and, and so on. Um, but a bishop really scripturally is just an elder that seemingly has additional responsibilities as well. 
Um, so it's still part of this oversight of the church from a spiritual perspective. And of course, then the pastor. Now, the pastor is also one of the elders, but typically the pastor has this responsibility uh, of teaching. Um, but all of the elders are together. You'll notice that it's elders. It's plural. Uh, you don't just have a single elder or a single pastor leading. There needs to be this uh, plurality. There needs to be this accountability among the leadership. And that's exactly what we find throughout the New Testament. So with all of that said, let's just come back to these kind of qualities or qualifiers that Peter says here. Now, he says this of himself, but in a sense, by deduction, you can say, well, this then must apply to other elders. If Peter applies this to himself as a qualifier, then really it should apply to all elders. And he says, firstly, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And secondly, a partaker or a participant of the glory that shall be revealed. Well, we then ask the question in the first one, how can we be a witness of Christ's sufferings? Well, let me just throw out there that there is no scriptural record that Peter was present at the crucifixion. In fact, even when Jesus was being uh, beaten by the Jewish authorities and then taken away by the, the Romans and, and whipped and so on before he was taken to Calvary, there's no scriptural basis to say that Peter witnessed any of that. We know that Peter came with John, followed Jesus uh, down to um, the high priest's house and was in the courtyard whilst Jesus was taken inside. So whilst Jesus is inside, maybe uh, he heard the commotion, but we know that Jesus didn't cry out. Jesus didn't uh, let out these gasps of, of anguish or pain. He was silent. Uh, and so Peter, by saying he was a witness, it doesn't seem to imply that he was an eyewitness of the actual brutality that took place um, toward Jesus. And certainly there's no suggestion we find in Scripture that Peter was actually at the cross. Now, he may have been. That's not to say he wasn't, but there's nothing in Scripture that says he was. What we do glean is that Peter kind of fled from the, the courtyard uh, situation uh, and the, the next time we see him, he's in hiding. So it would seem that Peter, from that point of after denying Jesus, just gets out of there and doesn't actually directly witness what we would tend to think of as the sufferings of Christ. So how does this apply? Well, I think it's in this way. And I think this is why this applies to all those who are elders or in a position of responsibility uh, spiritually within a church, a local church environment. And that's simply that we should feel the same pain and disdain for sin that Jesus did. Okay, so Paul is saying that he is a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Peter, very aware that upon Christ was placed the sin of the whole world. And, and by being a witness of the sufferings, Peter had, of course, in the upper room where, or in the room when Jesus appears on the, the day of the resurrection in the evening, Jesus appears and Peter looks and sees, as the other disciples did, the, the nail prints in Jesus's hand. You know, of course, it's it's a week later that Thomas is there and he sees those things. But they would have all seen that. They'd all seen that that hole in his side where the spear had been thrust. So Peter, very aware of what Jesus had gone through. But I think it's more to uh, the, the understanding here is that Peter realized what had caused Jesus this pain. So Peter would have understood the uh, sufferings that Jesus had endured for us so that we can have this uh, this new life. Now, 
There's a quote from Paul Washer that I read uh, last night as I was preparing. and I really like this. He said, if Jesus Christ isn't strong enough to motivate you to live biblically, you don't know him at all. And in a kind of way, I just thought it's so applicable to this. You know, as an elder or someone in a position of responsibility and leadership within a church, it's essential that we live for Jesus Christ in every aspect of our lives. And if we don't, well, truthfully, we probably don't know Jesus because we need to appreciate, understand what Jesus endured for us. And if we do that, it should dramatically change the way we live our lives so that's the first thing that i think peter well we can draw from what peter says here the second part is that peter says that he was a partaker of the glory now how can that apply to an elder in a church setting well are you living now in the grace that will sustain you throughout eternity now in one sense we could argue that all believers are to a point but there are many believers that in a sense, are still living a fairly carnal life. We should be living, and certainly those in positions of leadership within a church, should be living by that grace, no longer relying on the flesh, no longer relying on the the world's economy, the world's ways of doing things, no longer going to the world to be comforted or um, um, placated in regard to anything. You know, we should be going straight to God and living by the grace that he provides. You know, and Peter uses this word a partaker, that literally we become a participant in that eternal life that Jesus Christ died to let us have, that we can be given this life. You know, we are living now in these bodies, these earthly, fleshly bodies. These are just a tent, a tabernacle that we're dwelling in. But we should be living that eternal life right now. You know, and it really is that living a born again, spirit filled life now that we should be partaking of this life. And that is the glory that is going to be fully revealed. We don't yet see all that that the Lord is doing. But, you know, we know we are being changed, being transformed more and more into his likeness. So I think there are two qualifiers that we have uh, for this role. Now, notice again that Peter says that he's also an elder. He's just a fellow elder. Um, some presbyteros is the, the Greek word, uh, and it's used a couple of times in the books of Acts as well, book of Acts as well. Peter declares himself a co-worker, if you like, with them, a co-presbyter with them. Um, interestingly, uh, just drawing from uh, Chuck Mizzler's study on this, he said, uh, this is all that Simon Peter ever claimed to be. He calls himself a fellow elder. He never claimed to be super- in a superior place above his brethren, but as a fellow elder, he exalts them. And note, the elders are never spoken of in singular. Uh, there was never to be only one. Um, so that's what I said a moment ago. Um, well, once again, uh, uh, Peter comes alongside the fellow elders and in a sense by making this statement i'm also an elder there's a there's a touch of empathy not just sympathy but empathy there to say i know what you're going through i understand your circumstance because i'm also an elder i'm also in this position and in a sense he assures them that he's with them in this 
Peter was qualified to give this exhortation because he was in this unique position. Now, of course, in the past, Peter had physically seen that glory that he writes of when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. As Jesus, uh, in Oswald Chambers' words, turns the natural into spiritual. You know, we are living in these natural bodies, but as we commented and spoke a few weeks ago, we should be being transformed so that effectively the natural becomes a very small part of who we are. The real us is that spiritual life, the new life that has been born, that we are to sow to the spirit, not to the flesh, that we're to feed that spiritual life within us. And so that spiritual life grows. Jesus, of course, was without sin. And he gets to that point where literally his, his spiritual life just overwhelmed the natural. Uh, and that's, in a sense, the goal for all of us, that we become more and more Christ-like, we think, godly, and so on. Interestingly enough, in Peter's second epistle, uh, he's going to identify this as taking place on the Mount of Transfiguration. And we'll look at that in detail of all that took place there. It's quite a fascinating uh, study in and of itself. So, again, Peter, a fellow elder, he's in this, he knows what they're going through. I just want to to read you something. Uh, I wasn't going to do this, but I think it's appropriate that I do. Uh, and I don't want to um, uh, make this a cause for concern for you. But I just want to read this because I want you to be aware uh, of something that's going on right now. This was a, a, a post uh, that was shared, I believe, on Facebook but from a, a website, churchanswers.com. Let me just read this to you and just to, just to see what you think. Uh, and you'll see, hopefully, the context of why I'm sharing it. About one third of you readers are laypersons. This article is for you. Of course, I know pastors and other vocational ministry leaders will be reading as well. Perhaps more than my article, they'll be reading your comments. They'll be searching eagerly to see if anyone has a word of encouragement. They may be anticipating the responses will be a barrage of negativity that they have become accustomed to receiving. Please hear me clearly. The vast majority of pastors with whom our team communicates are saying that they are considering quitting their churches. It's a trend I have not seen in my lifetime. Some are just weeks away from making an announcement. They are looking for work in the secular world. Some will move to bivocational ministry. Some will move to marketplace ministry. But many will move. Why has this period of great discouragement ensued? Of course, it's connected to COVID-19, but the pandemic really just exasperated trends already in place. We would have likely gone to this point in the next three to five years regardless. I also want you to know that these pastors do not think they'll be leaving ministry. They just believe the current state of negativity and apathy in many local churches is not the most effective way they can be doing ministry. So they are leaving or getting ready to leave. There are many reasons why, but allow me to share the top six reasons, understanding that they are not mutually exclusive. Pastors are weary from the pandemic, just like everyone else. Pastors are not superhumans. They miss their routines. They miss seeing people as they used to. They would like the world to return to normal, but they realize the old normal will not return. Number two, pastors are greatly discouraged about the fighting taking place among church members, about the post-quarantine church. Gather in person or wait, masks or no masks, social distancing or not. Too many church members have adopted the mindset of culture that made these issues political fights. 
pastors deal directly with complaints about the decisions the church makes. Pastors are discouraged about, this is the third one, pastors are discouraged about losing members in attendance. For sure, it's not all about numbers, but imagine your own mindset if one half or more of your friends stopped engaging with you. And pastors have already heard directly or indirectly from around one-fourth of the members that they do not plan to return at all. Number four, pastors don't know if their churches will be able to support ministries financially in the future. In the early stages of the pandemic, giving was largely healthy. Church members stepped up and government infusion of funds for businesses and consumers helped as well. Now the financial future is cloudy. Can the church continue to support the ministries they need to do? Will the church need to eliminate positions? These are weighty issues, heavy on a pastor. Number five, criticism against pastors have increased significantly. One pastor recently shared with me the number of criticisms he receives are five times greater than the pre-pandemic era. Church members are worried. Church members are weary. And the most convenient target for their, uh, their angst is their pastor. Number six. The workload for pastors has increased greatly. Almost every pastor with whom we communicate expresses surprise at their level of work since the pandemic began. It really makes sense. They are trying to serve the congregation in the way they have in the past, but now they have the added responsibility that have come with the digital world. And as expected, pastoral care needs among the members have increased during the pandemic as well. Pastors are burnt out, beaten up and trodden down. Many are about to quit. And it goes on. Now, I share that not because I'm about to hand in my notice. I'm not about to quit. But it is tough. It's a, it's a weary uh, situation. And we're going to come to some of the things that Peter says uh, in a moment. But I just want you to be aware, because as members of a congregation, you need to be praying for your leaders. Now, I am grateful, hugely grateful to the encouragement and the support uh, that myself and Bob and Pete get uh, continually. But pray for the other pastors, too. I personally know some pastors that are going through exactly those things. You know, and there's not enough churches out there at the moment. There's not enough people out there sharing and preaching and teaching the gospel and particularly preaching it faithfully. So we need to be praying for the church. We need to be praying for those in leadership. And you need to be thinking very carefully about the ways you express things, the ways you encourage, because it could just be the the top brick on that uh Sheree loves building these towers you know and it, it's never the the middle brick or the bottom brick it's always that top brick that topples the whole thing and we need to just be very very careful as a congregation when we come to some of these these ideas you'll see hopefully why uh partly I shared that with you okay let's let's carry on with the text Peter as I say is encouraging in this first verse the fact that he is also an elder, he's in this with them. And then he says this really important statement. This is his encouragement to those that are, are leading the church, the pastors particularly, but the elders in general. Feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind. Now notice what he says is feed, not fleece the flock of God. Sadly, throughout 
um, much of the church over the last uh, 50, 60 years, and particularly with the advent of, of Christian TV and so on, uh, there's been so much abuse where um, so-called pastors or people with ministries have tried to exact money from congregations to, to buy their new jet or their fast car or whatever they apparently need for their ministry. <laughs> Notice that uh, this command was given by Jesus when Peter was reinstated, this whole idea of feeding the flock of God. But notice the things that are omitted from the list. Now, I'm not going to go through a list of the things that are on the list, but what is it that Peter says is the primary objective here? It's to feed the flock of God. In other words, teach them, give them spiritual food. Now, there are other aspects to an elder's ministry. There are other aspects to pastoral ministry. But the thing that Peter highlights, most of all, and he himself being in this position knows full well what he's talking about. The most important thing he says is feed the people, give them spiritual food. Interestingly enough, many of the things that are often associated with the work of a pastor are actually scripturally the responsibility of the whole congregation. You know, I, I praise God that we have a fellowship where many, many people in the fellowship uh, are involved in some sort of ministry. And there's a lot of love and support and care. And that's a wonderful thing. In many churches, that's not the case. And you typically have somebody, uh, the pastor and the elders, who are responsible for many, many things that actually is not their remit. The congregation should be pulling together and working. Again, pray for those godly pastors in this country. You know, I pray, uh, I wouldn't say daily, to be honest, but I pray regularly for the Calvary Chapel pastors, uh, my brothers who are out there ministering as well. And some of them are in very, very difficult situations, very hard, very draining, particularly those who are bivocational. You know, you do a day job and your mind is all on that and you have pressure and responsibilities and then you you have to kind of change hats uh, and it is a challenge and we often talk about you know trying to keep each other sane as we go through this but please pray for me and pray for them interestingly enough i'll just talk a little bit about sheep because obviously peter uses this analogy uh it says feed the flock now of course peter himself was a fisherman but no doubt he had friends that looked after sheep he knew those that did look after sheep and he uses this expression to feed the flock of god uh, looking at uh, some websites, just interesting analogies that we draw from sheep. Now, firstly, I thought this is quite interesting. This is just some of the websites I was looking at last night, and I just put a list together of the key things that were being said. There are many different breeds of sheep and all have a different purpose. And I thought, how true of a congregation? You know, within a congregation, there are different ministries and different gifts and different types of people, just as there are with sheep. These are the kind of things that the, the, the elders are being encouraged to to take responsibility for and told they have to it's their, their duty the second one sheep need to be protected from dogs and wolves and other predators uh, and there was a, a statement on a number of these websites that sheep are prone to roam so need a safe perimeter well isn't that true of our churches and those within the church you know christians are often prone to roam and they need to be kept in a safe environment and there are indeed many ravening wolves out there as peter tells us uh, sorry as paul tells us third one was that sheep need to be fed regularly in fact sheep spend most of their time eating or they should do if they're a healthy sheep but it's not just constant eating that they need they need a balanced diet and one of the statements was that we recommend paddock rotation if possible in other words you don't just have one 
source of food you have uh, you have a, a variety of of things in your diet now that's one of the reasons with our bible studies we try and mix old testament new testament and so on and every now and again we'll throw in some topical teaching we need a balanced diet if we're going to be healthy sheep also need a, a supply of fresh water daily i thought how apt that is you know we need that water of god's word but also also speaks of the holy spirit uh, and we need that fresh outpouring daily in our lives i thought this was interesting worming is most important for your sheep uh, worms and other parasites can have a catastrophic effect on flock if not controlled well once again there are many things that can creep into our lives just like those worms that can cause all sorts of problems to our spiritual health uh, and another thing was that sick sheep need attention urgently and it said call the vet immediately well you know we need to go to the lord when we find those within the congregation um that are not well that are not uh where they should be spiritually or that are struggling you know we have someone greater than any vet we have the great physician there are many other things you know think talking about keeping rams and ewes apart uh until the desired time for obvious reasons uh maybe pete that's something you can pick up when you have the next young people's meeting you know but th those kind of things lots of good instructions for looking after sheep and you see how applicable they are for caring for the flock of god notice also um, that it is feed the flock of God. Okay, the, it's very clear that the sheep do not belong to the pastor. The congregation doesn't belong to the pastor or to the elders. It's God's. These are God's people. This is one of the reasons that as a church, and I know other churches do this, and that's their choice and their decision, we don't have a membership as such. You know, if you want to come along to the fellowship, if you want to be part of it, that's absolutely fine. There is no membership. You don't sign up or anything else. The only the only membership is to the body of Christ. You know, and if people and when they have over the years choose to move on and go and be fed elsewhere, well, provided they're going somewhere where they're going to be fed, then they go with my blessing. You know, I don't own them. They're not part of a particular group that I've got control over or that the elders have got control over. Members of the congregation are free to do what they want, you know, and we've got people and, you know, people that we have that sometimes come and join us for a season and then go elsewhere for a season. And, you know, that's absolutely fine. As long as they're being fed, as long as they're growing in grace, they are not the, the flock of Calvary Portsmouth. We belong to Jesus Christ. And it's making that this very clear. Sometimes churches get quite possessive about people. Um, you know, we, we, you know, we can't, we don't lose people. I mean, it's people are walking with Jesus or not walking with Jesus. That's what matters. Peter goes on and says, um, the feed the flock of God, which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. Now, this, this word is interesting. It's related to, uh, the participle in, in the Greek is serving as overseers. And you have the Greek word there, watching over those for whom they must give account. And Hebrews 13:7 is the idea, gives us the idea. Uh, it's now an overseer. That's what Peter's saying. The, and, and James also has alluded to this, that actually those in positions of authority, leadership, pastors, elders typically, they will be judged stricter than members of the congregation. They've been given this responsibility, uh, this uh, accountability for the souls of those who have been entrusted to their care. Numerous uh, verses in the New Testament allude to this idea. But then it goes on, it says, uh, uh, therefore, not by constraint. Now, just before we go on, I need to just highlight this, because it's saying, don't do it because you feel you have to do it. And yet at the same time, 
you'll find that Paul makes the point that actually he can't do anything else. You know, it is woe unto me if I preach not the gospel. Peter, uh, Paul felt absolutely constrained to this ministry. Many books, and I've got a number of books about being a pastor and the responsibilities of a pastor, and they nearly all say the same thing. And that is, don't be a pastor unless there's nothing else you can do. Okay, in terms of ministry, if that's the, unless that's the only thing, and that's clearly what God is calling to you, and you can't get out of that, then don't do it. Many challenges, many pressures that come along with it. Um, you know, and yet Peter's saying, don't do it by constraints. So how do you balance those two things? Well, I think it's this, that as pastors, as elders, we should never do that which we do out of a sense of um, carnal obligation, but we should do it out of a sense of spiritual obligation. Okay, so it shouldn't be something that's done simply because we've been backed into a corner and somebody kind of press ganged us and told us that we'd be really good at this. We should do it and we don't really want to do it, but we haven't really got a way out. That's not how it should be. It doesn't mean that there's times that it's not tough, that it's not difficult. But the reason we do it, the reason every Sunday, that every time we meet on a Tuesday as a fellowship and Bible studies, you know, we do it because we've been called to this by God. So in one sense, we are constrained to this as pastors, as elders. But at the same time, it's not doing it begrudgingly. He says, but willingly, and that's the point. This is something that in our hearts we know we do because ultimately we're told not to do that which we do for each other, but we do it as unto the Lord. And I think for me, that's always the key. Truthfully, if I were to do that which I do for other people and for people in the congregation, there'd be times probably that I would tire. But when you do it for the Lord, you never tire. You never get to that place of going, I can't bother, be bothered with this. Oh, it's too hard. They don't appreciate me or whatever things of the flesh may, may come into our minds from times. But when we do it for the Lord, you'll never get to a point of outgiving God. You'll never get to a point where you think you've paid back that which you've been given. You know, and I think that is how our mindset as, as leaders, as elders, as pastors should be. That, that which we do, we do unto the Lord. It's for Jesus Christ that we do this and he's given us more than we deserve more than we could ever deserve and that's why we do it willingly because it's a joy to serve him notice also it says not for filthy lucre but of a ready mind now of course in the new testament in first timothy 5 paul says to timothy that um a labor is worthy of his wages he says don't muzzle the ox as he treads out the grain so in one sense there is a biblical mandate that pastors and sometimes elders should receive remuneration for that which they do so again how do we balance this well it's quite simple if you're doing what you're doing simply to obtain reward well, then that then means that it really does become filthy lucre because your objective is not to serve. It's not to bless. It's not to encourage. It's not to teach. It's simply to get something for yourself. That is where it becomes filthy lucre. And Peter's saying to us, don't do it for impure motives or impure reasons. But he says, but of a ready mind uh, there's a lot in scripture about having a sound mind and so on uh, and this is really that same kind of idea 
You know, the exhortations here actually kind of reflect Ezekiel 34, uh, the first 16 verses of that chapter, where the false shepherds were uh, contrasted with the true shepherds, those that were doing it just to gain for themselves and those that were doing it for God's glory, for God's purpose, for his people, because it was honoring to him. Then we go on in verse three, we're told neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being examples or examples to the flock. Now, we get a great example for us in John 13 with the washing of the feet. Peter, no doubt in his mind as he's writing this, probably had that flashback, that thing, the reminding in his spirit of those things that had taken place in that upper room when Peter objected to Jesus washing his feet. And yet Jesus was showing that principle that we should be willing to serve the most. We should be willing to, to do the menial work, the dirty work, if, if it comes to it. That, that's part of the role. Because actually those things are just as glorifying to God. You know, I've said before, sometimes when we you know, have got down to the school to set up equipment and so on, you know, that set up period is an act of worship. To me, that's always been just like pouring that costly oil upon Jesus's feet just as we see that the example with Mary you know that's an act of worship it may be that other people don't see the chairs being put out or the microphone stands being set up or the equipment being set up for Sunday school or for crash but you know that's an act of worship and we need to realize that it's not just the things the visible things that people see it's all of our service to God is our service to God okay so we should be examples in that sense that people should be able to look at us and see that actually we don't just do it for the limelight, for the glory, for the fame. That, that's Of course, it's none of that. We're doing it because we're serving. So we should be these examples. But let me just go back to that first statement there. Neither as being lords over God's heritage. I mean, I need to make the point, of course, that it's God's heritage. This isn't my church you know, uh, sometimes people talk about, you know, oh, well, you know, my church and use that kind of vocabulary. But strictly speaking, that, that doesn't apply. It's not my church. It's not the elders church. This is God's heritage. This is God's people. You're the, the church of Jesus Christ. Don't belong to me. I've been entrusted with a task of, of teaching, of feeding the flock but not of being a lord over and ruling over. Uh, you know, uh, and I don't think any pastor should ever be in a position where they kind of dictate what happens and how things happen. You know, we should work collaboratively. We should work together as a body. Every part of the body doing its share, as we read very clearly in Ephesians. You know, this is, in a sense, uh, I say a democracy, but it's, it's more than that. It's actually a theocracy where God is in control and we all need to work together to serve him and to grow together. You know, and, and, and I love people that, that come with ideas and say, how about we do this? How about we do that? You know, if it's for the glory of God, let's do it. I, I can't come up with all the ideas or all the thoughts of what we should do as a church or how we should do things, you know, so we should be working together and certainly uh, an elder in this context as peter saying should not place themselves or allow themselves to be placed where they are uh, being a lord or trying to rule or dictate uh, over god's people they are god's people at the end of the day again let me just make that point that peter um never knew that he was a pope uh, as the uh, the catholic church would try and have us believe 
Um, elders, of course, are not to get delusions of grandeur. The sheep belong to God. They're his heritage. And these elders, we have to be living epistles, as Paul uses that expression, you know, being read by all men. You know, our lives should be an open book that people can look at and glorify God through. And then Peter goes on and says, and when the chief shepherd shall appear, you shall receive a crown of glory that fades not away. Now, Peter making it really clear that we are under shepherds is a term that's sometimes used that we have this responsibility this oversight this care of the local congregation and of course there are many local congregations that make up the body of Christ there are many elders within those congregations and pastors so on that are doing that role of teaching and feeding the flock and we're told to do it as we just said willingly not for for personal gain, financial reward or anything else, purely for God's glory and that the, the, the sheep within those congregations would grow and so on. And then we're told that when the chief shepherd, when Jesus Christ shall appear. Now, Peter focuses a lot on the return of Jesus Christ. You know, not more so than the other apostles, but you just see that heart of Peter. He was longing to see his Lord again. And and every week that went by, you could just imagine that that heart of Peter just longing and expecting, will it be this week that our Messiah, that our Savior will return, that I'll get to see him again? You know, Peter had walked with Jesus for three and a half years uh, or thereabouts and had got to know him, got to love him. And of course, we have that that conversation that we alluded to earlier at the end of John's gospel, where Jesus says to Peter, do you love me unconditionally? And Peter responds and says, Lord, you know, I'm fond of you. Uh, the phileo is the word in the Greek that he uses. It's a kind of a friendship. Uh, and then again, Jesus, Peter, do you agape me? Do you love me unconditionally? And Peter, again, unable to respond. Now, at that point, that's where Peter was in his life. But, you know, I really feel that by this point, had Peter been asked that question again, Peter's response would have been, yes, Lord, I agape you. I'll love you unconditionally. Because Peter had had time now to reflect on those three and a half years. And, and possibly like James, who kind of missed that period, kind of regretted not making more of that opportunity. It's a way that we should all be. We should all be walking with the Lord so closely, so deeply, that we are longing for him to come back. Because He's like a, a a dearly beloved friend who we haven't seen for a long time and we can't wait to see him again in person. Now, of course, we have the privilege and the opportunity to go to Jesus every day, that we can come in prayer before the Father and Jesus is there as our intercessor. We have this great privilege, so we're not separated in that sense. But there's still this wonderful joy that awaits us when we get to see Jesus face to face. And Peter says that when we do that, when Jesus does appear, when we're caught up to meet him in the air, because that's when we'll first see him at the time of the rapture. It says for those that have been faithful, for those that have not lauded it over God's heritage, for those that have not done what they've done out of the sense of, oh, I've got to do this, but don't really want to. Those who have served for the glory of God, those that have been faithful in their ministry and not done it just purely for some sort of financial gain, those that have been faithful, those that have fed the flock of God, there is promised here this crown of glory, this reward that fades not away. Now, 
in the New Testament, um, there are a number of crowns. We're going to come to that in a second. But those crowns generally are promised to all believers. But this crown is specifically promised to those who are elders, who are pastors, those who have taken on this um, responsibility or have responded to God's calling in their life and are, are now ministering in this way. Uh, and there is this promise of reward. Why is there a specific promise? Well, because sometimes there has to be this foregoing of worldly uh, accolades, of worldly rewards that may otherwise have been attained. You know, those things are all pushed to one side for the express purpose of feeding the flock of God. And so there is this promise that there is a greater award awaiting us. Peter here refers to him as the chief shepherd. In Psalm 22, Jesus is referred to as the good shepherd who gives his life for the sheep. In these uh, sheep psalms, as it were, in Psalm 23, of course, Jesus is the great shepherd who watches over the sheep. And then in Psalm 24, he has the chief shepherd again. This is the, the expression that Peter uses, who's coming again in glory. <clears throat> again, I mentioned this a moment ago, this promise of rewards for faithful service. You know, let's just contrast the, the young people did this. The children did this a few weeks back now, looking at the situation with Jericho. Do you remember there was that very clear instruction, don't take reward from the world, from Jericho, from this place of iniquity. And don't seek after filthy lucre. Don't look to take these things because they'll, they'll corrupt you and so on. You know, and that's in a sense the contrast that, that is put out here for pastors and for elders. Don't seek that kind of reward. It's the contrast then with AI when the children of Israel were told that they could go and take that which they wanted. They could take the, the spoil. Um, yeah, and you think what a what a, a foolish situation Aiken put himself in because of his impatience, because of his lust, which is really all it was, wanting it now that he took the Babylonian garment and so on from Jericho, hid it under his tent. Well, couldn't really enjoy it because it was hidden under his tent. You know, there was no benefit to him there. Couldn't wear it out in public because everyone would say, where did you get that from? You know, so it didn't help him in any way. If only he'd have waited for God's timing, he would have received a great reward. It's the same thing. We have to be patient. We have to realize that our reward doesn't come in this life, in this time. One commentator, commentary I read said this, a little now and nothing then, or nothing now and a great reward then, question mark. And that's the choice that really lays before each one of us. We can have a little now and nothing then, nothing when we get to heaven. You know, we're told to lay up our treasure in heaven. You know, uh, John says that we should work hard so that we don't lose our reward. Uh, and you see that we, we get a full reward. You know, or we can have nothing now, you know, forfeit all that this world has. You know, to treat it, as Paul says, as, as rubbish for the sake of all that we will win in Jesus Christ. And it's not just for the rewards, it's to gain Jesus Christ. It's that we may be found in him. What awaits us far outweighs anything that is available now. These crowns, we've looked at them many times, so I'm not going to go through them in detail. Um, but of course, in James, we have there the crown of life is also alluded to in Revelation 2 verse 10. And it really speaks of those that have lived their life and have suffered 
for his sake. You know, sometimes talk, people talk about martyr, you know, people who've been martyred for their faith and, and so on. Uh, and so people say, you know, oh, it must be hard to die for your faith. Well, truthfully, the hardest part is to live for your faith. In fact, if you don't live for your faith, it's unlikely you're going to die for it. Uh, but those who have suffered for his sake are promised the crown of life. There's the crown of righteousness for those who are looking forward, who are excited about Jesus' returning for us. Sadly, so many Christians seem to find this a, a difficult area. They don't want to look at it. They don't want to think about it. You know, Jesus coming back is the greatest possible thing that any believer can aspire to 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 have before them as a goal as a dream as a desire that that's got to be our focus nothing else in this world comes close the best possible thing you can think of will pale into insignificance it's in the the great song the hymn we sing turn your eyes upon jesus look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will become strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace and then there's the crown that's incorruptible for those who press on, those who run the race like they mean to win it. You know, we're not trying to uh, obtain a worldly fleshly crown that will, that will be perishable. We're obtaining a crown that doesn't fade away, that is going to be eternal. The crown of rejoicing in First Thessalonians 2.19 is promised to those who witness, who win souls for Jesus Christ. You know, what a great crown to be striving for in a sense that we witness, that we tell people about our Savior. And then finally, this crown of glory that we've been speaking about for those who feed the flock of God. Okay. There is so much more in this chapter and we're going to get next time because we're going to leave it there for now. Uh, we're going to get on to this section where it starts to look at the responsibility of those within the congregation and the responses. And we'll build on some of the things that we've said this morning as we look at that. So I encourage you, uh, there's only uh, 14 verses in this chapter. We've just got to verse five. So, uh, oh, sorry, verse four. So read from verse five this week. Uh, just go over it and just let it sink in and then we'll study it next week. And there's a lot of instruction that comes out about a, how a church should function. And Peter's very consistent with the things that he's already been telling us in this epistle and he's going to go carry on uh, and use the same ideas when he speaks about how the order in the church should be uh, and so on and obviously um, just just speaking again of this this coming kingdom uh, we'll conclude there all right Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for this time this morning to study your word, Lord, for these things that we've been able to look at. Father, we do pray this morning for pastors, Lord, throughout this land, uh, particularly, Lord, that are ministering faithfully, that are preaching and teaching your word to their congregations, Lord. We pray you uphold and strengthen them. Father, we pray that none of them would be found to be doing that which they do through, uh, Lord, a, a, a carnal constraint. But Lord, simply because your love constrains them and it's for your glory they serve. Oh, my Father, we pray for the congregations too, that they would encourage and support their elders and their pastors. Lord, we live in very difficult days, Lord. We see so much around us that is ungodly. And Lord, as Paul tells us, we, we should be redeeming the time for the days are evil. So Lord, to help us to to be a, a church that brings glory to you, that loves and cares and supports and encourages each other, that we may grow in grace together. Lord, knowing that one day we will all stand before your throne and worship you. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the Lord of Glory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. <laughs>